get this fixed. There we go. I think we got it. There we go. I, I saw the okay in the back row. So, well, I, anyways, just saying, uh, encouraged by what I see God doing here. And I uh, want to continue to encourage you uh, in that. Hopefully my story might be a bit of an encouragement to you as you continue to live out your faith, your calling to be a light in the midst of darkness. Thirty-five years ago or so, uh, my mother was on a city train here in Chicago on her way to work. Uh, My mother grew up in a conservative Jewish home in Skokie, where a lot of Jewish people uh, lived then, still today. And uh, she did what typical Jewish people do. Uh, Go to synagogue when it really counts. And when it really counts for Jewish people to show up at synagogue is during what's called the High Holidays, uh, which happened a couple months ago. And uh, that's uh, called Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. That's when the whole sin thing gets taken care of in the Jewish tradition, where you have ten days in between these two holidays to tip the scales to make sure that your name gets written in the right book the book of life or the book of death. And, of course, they're hoping that their name gets inscribed in the book of life. But if you were to ask my mom, if you were to ask any Jewish person walking out of the synagogue after the Yom Kippur service, do you know if your name was inscribed in the book of life? The best answer that anyone, any Jewish person could give you is, I can only hope so, because there is no assurance of salvation in the Jewish faith. Well, my mom went to synagogue during these holidays and some other times for some bar mitzvahs or bat mitzvahs. And uh, she also was a good Jewish girl in that she enjoyed fine Jewish delicacies like matzo ball soup and lox and bagels. That's kind of our litmus test for whether or not you're Jewish, just so you know. You're born, and then on the eighth day, we put out the lox and bagels and matzo ball soup. If you reach for them, we know you're Jewish. If you've been reaching for lox and bagels and matzo ball soup recently, maybe you're Jewish too, you just didn't know it. And so my mother was going through a difficult season in her life. And she was on the train, and there was an African-American man by the name of Josh Wiggins who saw my mom almost every day. And Josh was a child of God, and he sensed within his heart that the Holy Spirit was saying, Hey, Josh, that uh, white Jewish woman who you see, guess what? She deeply matters to me. And you have never looked into the eyes of someone who doesn't matter to me. And I want you to do what you've been called to do in this world. Be my hands and be my feet. Be a vessel of truth and grace and mercy and compassion in this woman's life. And so Josh, being obedient to the prompting of the Holy Spirit, to the nudge of God upon his heart, he got up out of his seat on that train and he walked way outside of his comfort zone. And he walks up to my mom. And he said, you know, this is going to sound a little strange, but it just seems to me that you could really use a friend. And guess what? She did. Over the next several months, Josh Josh started building a friendship with my mom. Uh, They started meeting weekly at DePaul University. And uh, Josh would just start unfolding God's redemptive story in his own life. And he told her that there was a Jewish rabbi from Nazareth who had radically impacted and transformed his life. In case you're a little fuzzy about which Jewish rabbi from Nazareth I'm talking about, of course, we're talking about Jesus, right? And he challenged her to investigate the Messianic prophecies in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, and to read the Gospels to see if Jesus might be the fulfillment 
of those prophecies as he himself had come to believe. And she took him up on that challenge. And she was utterly compelled by the evidence. Just couldn't believe that it just seemed to be so clear. And she walked into her rabbi's office and she said, what's up with this? How come you've never told me this stuff before? And he didn't really give her a satisfactory response. And she walked out of that meeting knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that there could be none other but Jesus who was the promised Messiah of Israel. And most importantly, the promised Messiah of her life, her leader, and her forgiver. And a few years later, when I was just eight years old, Josh and his wife Liz and their three daughters, Angie, Tasha, and Tina, had the opportunity to team up on me to help me understand that the most Jewish thing that any Jewish kid could ever do is embrace Jesus as Messiah. Because if he truly was the promised Messiah of Israel, then there's nothing more Jewish than believing in him and embracing him and following him. And friends, I would say the most Jewish thing that any of you have ever done is embrace Jesus as your Messiah. Because the good news yesterday is the same good news today. It'll be the same good news tomorrow. Is that Jesus is the only one who can make you kosher. Did you know that? That's right. He can take anything that's unclean. He could take anyone who's unclean and make them clean. Right? He can take anyone who's broken and by His transforming grace and mercy and compassion and His power, He can make you whole. And that is the message that we have to proclaim. Is that message, is that reality, is that truth, is that what got you up this morning? When you wake up every day, what is it that gets you out of bed? What compels you to continue to do life? Hopefully it's more than just the thought of getting to Starbucks for that morning coffee. Ho- hopefully it's more than just, oh, I, I, I have to get food on the table for the kids. Hopefully it's more than your wife, wife kicking you out of bed and saying, you lazy bum, let's get going. Okay? Let's hope that it's more than that, right? Let's hope that it's this message of grace that we have to share with a lost and dying world. Would you not agree with me that that's what got the Apostle Paul up in the morning? You think that got him up every day? You think that got him out of bed? I would say so. In Acts chapter 20, uh, verse 22, if you're taking notes, just uh, jot this down. Paul says this. He says, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. My only aim, he says. Friends, guess what? God's given you the same task. God's given you the same responsibility. And this, I hope, is what motivates us every day to get out of bed. 
But let me ask you this question. What keeps you up at night? What keeps you up at night? Usually what keeps people up at night is the potential of tremendous loss. The loss of a job and not knowing how to put food on the table for your family. That could really keep somebody up at night, can it? Uh, Maybe uh, a loved one of yours, maybe they got the phone call. Your results came back positive. I'm going to do all that we can, but it doesn't look very good. And you hear about that, and you think, I'm not sure how I can do life without that person. Loss of a loved one can keep someone up at night. Maybe you got the phone call, and that's keeping you up at night. But usually, tremendous loss, the potential of tremendous loss, will keep someone up at night. Let me ask this question. What do you think kept Paul up at night? We don't know. He never said, this is what keeps me up at night. But I can venture a guess that what kept Paul up at night is what he shares with us in Romans chapter 9. Got your Bible? Turn there. Romans chapter 9, starting at verse 1. We heard it read this morning. We'll read it again. He said, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Great sorrow, unceasing anguish. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. The potential of tremendous loss. The potential of his fellow kinsmen not spending an eternity in glory because of the rejection of Jesus as their Messiah. And this is really gnawing at him. Great sorrow, unceasing anguish. Unceasing. Like this is bothering him all the time, he's saying. In fact, it's bothering him so much that he says something similar to what a lot of us say when we hear news about someone else uh, who has a tremendous burden or, or, or they've gotten that, that phone call. We say, if there's anything I could do, I would trade places with them. I would take their spot. I'd carry that burden for them so that they don't have to carry it for themselves. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, I, I myself wish I were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people. What he's saying here, I'm willing to trade places. I'm willing to be cut off from Christ. I'm willing to give up my place in eternity so that others will have a spot in eternity, so that my fellow kinsmen, my family members, that they'll have a spot there. I want you to know something here if you haven't figured it out already. That's a really bold statement, isn't it? Any of you willing to say something like that? I'm willing to go to hell so that other people can go to heaven? And that's what Paul's saying here. Now, I'm very certain that Paul knew that his salvation was secure. God wasn't going to say, okay, I'll take you up on that one, Paul. But still, it really gives us a window into his heart, doesn't it? Maybe some of you feel this way for your 
family members and friends. But I, I want you to understand something here. Uh, Paul is talking about the people of Israel. He, he's talking about Jewish people. And we can look at this and, and we can say, well, Paul, you, you just have this burden because these were your people and I really only kind of have this burden for my people. Uh, but I want you to know something. Uh, Paul isn't just sharing this for his own sake. He's writing to the church in Rome, by the way. And the church in Rome is primarily, if not exclusively, Gentile background uh, believers. And a question seems to be asked here from that church to Paul. Uh, what about the Jews? Is God so upset with Jews rejecting Jesus as the Messiah that he's just kind of said, that's it, enough with them. Uh, they, they've been stubborn and blind all these century, centuries and they're just not getting it again. Getting it again and, and I'm fed up, I'm done with them. Is there any hope for the Jewish people? is essentially the question that's being asked here by that church. And uh, Paul responds. You can see here what his uh, response is in Romans uh, chapter 11, uh, verse 1. And uh, he says, uh, I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I'm an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he uh, foreknew. In other words, God's hands of redemption will forever be open to the people of Israel. And he talks about himself, too, in this. He says, look at me. Look at me. I'm a Jew. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. Like, I'm a Jew of Jews. Uh, and of all people, I mean, who God should not have saved, it should have been me. I was persecuting Christians. But look it. I'm here. God didn't give up on me, and he's not going to give up on other Jewish people as well. Let's be very clear on that. He wants to be so clear about it that in Romans chapter 11, verse 11, he readdresses the same question. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Like, no way, Jose. Okay? Rather, because of their transgression... Salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. Some translations put this in order to provoke the Jews to jealousy. Now, first off, uh, let me say here, there's a bit of a mystery in this one. Uh, what it's telling us is that somehow, because Jewish people rejected Jesus, it made it easier for Gentiles to see him and embrace him, okay? Uh, I'm going to have a little sit-down session with God on this one when I see him, okay? What's up with that? That's one of those kind of mysterious things, just not very clear about. So to a certain extent, you as Gentile background believers, you should be kind of grateful, apparently, that Jewish people back in the first century rejected Jesus uh, as Messiah, Okay? Okay, very good. But don't get too grateful about it. Because what does Paul say? Uh, he says, Salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious, to provoke them, to provoke them to jealousy. Um, in other words, Paul, Paul's saying here, I want to use you 
to provoke Jewish people back to me through how they see you living with their Messiah. Kind of a big responsibility, isn't it? So let me ask you this question. How has the church done over the last 1,800 years or so regarding this responsibility to provoke Jewish people to jealousy, to provoke them to actually want to have a relationship with Jesus by how they see you, the church, living with Him? Well, uh, to answer that question, I'm going to let a couple of Jewish people answer that question for you. They're the parents of a friend of mine, a Jewish friend of mine, who came to faith uh, when she was a student at Northwestern University about 12 years ago. Okay, uh, She, through the witness of some of the Christians there on campus, came to believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And she told her parents. And her parents were not thrilled about it. And that's to put it mildly. You'll get a sense here in a moment just how unthrilled they were. And uh, they wrote some letters to her to try to convince her to change her mind, to reject Jesus and to come back to the Jewish fold. And uh, this is what her father wrote. Jesus lived and died a Jew and was very comfortable in the role. He neither said nor did anything that would be in conflict with Judaism. Christianity is a religion about Jesus, not the religion of Jesus. Jesus would probably not be comfortable with Christianity. The New Testament writers frequently played loosely with the facts about Judaism, Jesus and Pilate, frequently to the detriment of the Jews. The New Testament is the root of anti-Semitism. Christianity needed to demonize the Jews in order to create their status. If you remove the hate from Christianity, you are left with Judaism. I hope this helps you understand your parents' revulsion when you embrace the hate that has been bestowed upon your flesh and blood for 19 centuries that is inherent in accepting the New Testament as truth. That was from her dad. This is from her mom. You were a medical miracle baby. I didn't give birth to a tainted baby that suffered from original sin. It is well-known psychology that people turn to born-again Christianity after a difficult childhood or a discouraging, empty life. Where did we fail as parents that you need some outside, warm, fuzzy father figure rather than your family to help you get through the day? She continues, We thought we had raised you to have an open mind and to accept people of different ethnic and religious backgrounds as individuals. But your new God-fearing religion has made you prejudiced and anti-Semitic. I have nothing against people who happen to be born Christian, but you have deliberately aligned yourself with, and therefore are in agreement with, the perpetrators of the Crusades, the Spanish Inquisitions, the Holocaust, the Russian pogroms, and other holy wars against the Jews. As long as you remain Christian, I can't forgive you for that. Imagine how it hurts me that you believe that I shall and are content to let me burn in hell. Millions of Jews before me throughout history have died at the hands of Christians because they refuse to convert, and it is folly for you to expect that suddenly your father and I will see the light. Even the fact that I don't believe in heaven or hell is immaterial. You do. 
So your beliefs are sending to hell the people who created you and raised you. A fine thank you. Anyone who worships a human being can worship the wrong person, like Hitler, David Koresh, Jim Jones, and many others, and can suffer their same fate of early disillusionment, economic ruin, and death. As a mother, I worry about that. You are apparently very susceptible. We feel that you have not only reneged on your religion, but your heritage and your parents as well. You disowned us and everything we believe, and we are reluctantly abiding by your decisions. Now, friends, when I first heard Deanne read this, my response in my heart was actually very defensive. I I imagined myself walking into her parents' home to set them straight. There's clearly some things you have wrong about Christianity. But then, the Holy Spirit got a hold of my heart. And I started processing a bit more what they were saying. And the reality came to me that these words, these feelings, these perspectives come from some pretty deeply wounded hearts. Hearts that have been wounded by things that have happened in the name of Jesus against Jewish people over the last 1,800 years or so. And I thought, you know what? There's some merit here. There's some credibility here. The silver lining, of course, that I saw in it was that they didn't so much have a problem with Jesus, do they? Their issue is with Jesus' friends. Those who call themselves Christians, those who call themselves followers of Jesus, but haven't lived out the way of Jesus when it comes to relating to the Jewish community. A lot of people have uh, written about this reality. Uh, Listen to what John Dawson, the international director of urban missions for YWAM, uh, wrote. He said, uh, people who have truly followed Jesus have always been genuine lovers of the Jewish people. But it is also true that the Christian church, in name, though not in spirit, has been responsible for much of the terrible suffering of the Jewish people. Uh, Arthur Hertzberg, a prominent Jewish author who passed away a few years ago, wrote in one of his best-selling books, The issue for Jews has always been Christendom, not Christianity, not the faith of the Christians, but their wrath towards the perfidious and faithless Jews. For 19 centuries, Christians have, been, uh, Christians have been obsessed with the question, why don't the Jews accept Jesus as their Messiah? Jews, in turn, have been obsessed with the question, why do they keep persecuting us? A Catholic priest, uh, Edward Flannery, in his widely acclaimed book, The Anguish of the Jews, uh, wrote that the vast majority of Christians, even well-educated ones, are all but totally ignorant of what happened to Jews in history and of the culpable involvement of the church. It is little exaggeration to state that those pages of history Jews have committed to memory are the very ones that have been torn from Christian and secular history books. Let me just give you a few lines from those pages. You want to know what some of those lines are? Origen in the second century. Origen was a prominent church leader in the 2nd century. 
not a minor guy, a big guy. And he said that a Jew murdered the Lord Jesus and is still today responsible for that murder. He also said that the Jews were altogether abandoned and possess now none of what were considered their ancient glories so that there is no indication whatsoever of any divinity abiding amongst them. No indication whatsoever. John Christotham in the 4th century. Uh, John was a like the Billy Graham of his day, if you will. He was known as the Golden Trumpet. Uh, just a prolific uh, speaker and, and leader within the Christian church. He said, You Jews did slay Christ. You did lift violent hands against the, mas- the Master. You did spill His precious blood. This is why, hear this, this is why you have no chance for atonement, excuse, or defense. And he went on to say, God always hated the Jews. It is incumbent upon all Christians to hate Jews. In fact, he said, if you want to prove your faith, hate the Jewish people. God always, here, interesting, God always hated the Jews. Really? God always hated Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? God always hated David? God always hated Solomon? Let's just go down the list. Hated those people? Really? There's no chance. Just so you know, this is what uh, became known as the the, uh, charge of deicide, that the Jews had murdered God and that there was no hope for them and that the only reason why they were still alive was to be a physical reminder to everyone else of what happens to you when you reject Jesus. St. Augustine, heard of him, other side of the church in the 4th century, he said the true image of the Jew is Judas Iscariot. The Jew can never understand the scriptures and forever will bear the guilt of the death of Jesus. Forever. Never understand. Give you a few more lines. Sorry to drop all this on you. But many of you, you know Jewish people, don't you? A show of hands. How many of you know someone who's Jewish? Almost everyone in the room. At some point, you're going to cross paths with a Jewish person. My wife and I have been uh, building a uh, relationship with a Holocaust survivor and his wife uh, the past couple of years. And uh, last year, uh, when we had dinner with them, Uh, I got the question from uh, this guy. uh, Why do you believe in Jesus? I love it when I get that question. Okay. I was able to share with him why I believe Jesus is the Messiah. And so I asked him back. Why don't you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Well, let me first read these words to you from this other prominent leader in history which will give you some sense as to why uh, this Jewish friend of mine doesn't believe. Uh, This guy uh, said, uh, first, their synagogues should be set on fire. 
And whatever is left should be buried in dirt so that no one may ever be able to see a stone or cinder of it. Jewish prayer books should be destroyed and rabbis forbidden to preach. Then the Jewish people should be dealt with, their homes smashed and destroyed, and their inmates put under one roof or in a stable like gypsies to teach them that they are not master in our land. Jews should be banned from the roads and markets, their property seized, and then these poisonous and venomed worms should be drafted into forced labor and made to earn their bread by the sweat of their noses. When you hear those words, you're probably thinking, many of you, sounds like Hitler. Hitler said that. Can I tell you, I wish it had been Hitler who said that. Because the one who said that has become a major barrier in many respects when it comes to helping Jewish people understand who Jesus is. Because the one who penned these words was Martin Luther, the great reformer, the one who took a bold stand within the Catholic Church, the one who we actually, because of that stand, are benefiting from that today. He wrote this in a book called On the Jews and Their Lies. That book was required reading for Nazi officers. His book was used as a part of the Nuremberg trials, the trials that happened after World War II when the Nazis were put on the stand and they used his book as a part of their defense case. You should be aware of this. Kristallnacht, the night of the broken glass. In fact, I think the 65th anniversary of that was just a few days ago. Um, actually, to be exact, two days ago. Guess what? Kristallnacht, the night of the broken glass, the event that kicked off what is known now today as the Holocaust, that was done in honor of Martin Luther's birthday. Everything I just read to you there, all of Martin Luther's remedies, those are all the things that happened there at Kristallnacht. And so what do you think my friend's response was? Why he didn't believe first thing out of his mouth. Martin Luther. Martin Luther. My grandmother, when my grandmother found out that my mother had come to believe that Jesus is, uh, was the Messiah, first words out of her mouth. What about Hitler? What about Hitler? Isn't it interesting that the Jewish community correlates faith in Jesus with people like Hitler? Or that they correlate it with people like Martin Luther. How different, friends, are the words of Paul in relation to guys like Martin Luther, Origen, Christotham, and Augustine. Apparently, they didn't consider what Paul wrote next in Romans chapter 11 at verse 12. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? How much greater riches will their fullness bring? Uh, Paul wanted them and he wants us to imagine the impact of Jewish people coming to faith. And he also wants to make it very clear that they will come to faith. God hasn't given up on them. 
I mean, if Paul were writing to us today, I think he would want us to consider what kind of impact would there be on the advancement of God's kingdom in the world if people like Spielberg and Seinfeld and Schwimmer and Sandler and Stiller and Stein and Streisand and Stern and Simon and Schuster. And this is just to name the S's. What if they came to embrace Jesus as Messiah? What kind of impact would that have? I think if Paul were writing to us today, he would also want us to consider what Mark Twain wrote about the Jewish people 110 years ago or so. He wrote, Jews constitute but 1% of the human race. In fact, just so you know, it's, it's one-fifth of 1% of the human race. It suggests a nebulous dim puff of stardust in the blaze of the Milky Way. Properly, the Jew ought hardly to be heard of, but he is heard of. He is as prominent on this planet as any other people. His commercial importance is extravagantly out of proportion to the smallness of his bulk. His contributions to the world's list of great names in literature, science, art, music, finance, medicine, and abstruse learning are also altogether out of proportion to the weakness of his numbers. He has made a marvelous fight in the world, in all ages, and he has done it with his hands tied behind him. I want you to imagine, because what what Mark Twain wrote about the Jewish people then is actually still very true about the Jewish community today. Imagine, friends, if God got a hold of their hearts and was able to unleash that influence for his glory and for his renown in all the earth. I mean, can you imagine that? You know, Paul wants to make it very clear to the church in Rome as he wants to make it very clear to us. Verse 13 Listen to this. He says, I'm talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? In other words, I think Paul is stating here, although my primary task is on making disciples of non-Jews, I'm equally committed to making disciples among the Jewish people and so should you. Because just imagine the global kingdom impact God will orchestrate through them when they come to faith. Considering Paul's words, I think it would be safe to say that the church's effectiveness in reaching Jewish people has a direct impact on its effectiveness in reaching all the peoples of the world. It might even be safe to say that the salvation of the Jewish people is the linchpin to the salvation of all people. Charles Simeon, uh, who was rector of Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge back in the late 18th and early 19th century and was considered to be the leading evangelical Anglican minister of his era, uh, was given a note by another minister at a meeting that they were having about reaching Jewish people. And the question on it from this other minister was six millions of Jews and six hundred millions of Gentiles. Which is the most important? Simeon wrote back. 
But if the conversion of the six is to be life from the dead to the 600 millions, what then? What then? Friends, I put that question to you. How's that kingdom footprint of yours doing in relation to the Jewish community? What engagement do you have there? How much of your time, talent, and treasure is invested there? Any of it? Would you agree with me that based on what we've just heard this morning from Paul, that some of our time, talent, and treasure should be invested there? I think so. I think it's safe to say that. And so how does God want to use you to provoke Jewish people to jealousy? And I'm going to end here with this because I can spend a lot of time telling you how to be more effective. But it all starts here, friends. It all starts with taking the position of humility, humbling yourselves. Do you get the sense that a lack of humility has been a major problem in relation to engaging the Jewish community over the last 1,800 years or so? Paul made it very clear. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Friends, I pray that you would have a bigger heart for your Jewish friends and neighbors. I pray that God would use your hands and use your feet. That he'd use your life to be a light to them. Would you commit to praying to that with me? Let's pray. Abinu Mulkenu, our Father and our King, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy and your compassion. And we thank you that your heart is big enough for all people. And we thank you that you don't give up on those who've turned their backs on you. Lord, you are an incredible and an amazing God. May we never, ever take for granted the work that you've done in us so that it might be a benefit to those around us. And may we, as Paul, be able to get to the end of our lives and, and, and say, I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to you for salvation. That is our hope and that is our prayer. And all God's children said, Amen. Amen.